As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're talking about one of the most important technological breakthroughs in the history of the world uh, on this episode. We're talking to John Darwin. He was a legend at Oxford University when I was studying there. He's been a professor of uh, global history, of imperial history there for years. And he's written many, many books on uh, Britain and, and Europe's empires of the 19th and early 20th centuries. His latest book is about how steam power remade the world. And he describes to me in this podcast how steam power transformed the world. I mean, harnessing the elemental forces of nature to produce almost unlimited power. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And he's very convincing on just how instrumental steam power was in that first great era of globalization. If you want to watch more programs about the British Empire, about European empires, 19th century history, or frankly any history, go to History Hit TV. It's like Netflix, but it's just history. So it's for proper history fans. And we've got shows on there from the Bronze Age to the Nuclear Age to the Digital Age. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free in your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So after you've listened to this wonderful podcast by John Darwin, the acclaimed historian, please head over to History at TV and subscribe. All the back episodes of this podcast are there as well. And you'll be supporting everything we do, which is a lot at the moment. Lots of exciting stuff going on. So enjoy this podcast. All about steam power. John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I was thinking the other day, as I was lifting boxes, at the extraordinary revolution that steam power was. I mean, can you give me a sense of how it replaced human bones and gristle and muscle with, with almost effectively unlimited power? Well, I suppose because of the way in which you think until steam... Indeed, yes, we relied upon human muscle, animal muscle. We relied upon a wind, which could be highly variable. We relied upon currents in rivers and at sea. And all those things, of course, as you say, they could be easily exhausted or fail to deliver when you needed them. Steam provides, once you have access to the fuel, coal, it provides, let's say, a non-stop, really unceasing, untiring source of power and energy. And that makes an enormous difference, uh, not only in industry, but, of course, famously in transport both uh, at sea and over land. So all of a sudden, the kind of limitations imposed by how much manpower you had available to you could be overcome. And that's an extraordinary benefit, especially when you think of settings where manpower will be limited, either by the fact you can't get people there or because of things like disease or hunger or other sorts of uh, limitation on manpower. So in that sense, it is. It is absolutely revolutionary. What was its geographical nature? Was it quite nucleated in terms of the 
that initial first wave of industrialization was it was it notable was there a sort of little islands of steam activity that then vastly outstripped neighboring territories oh yes i mean the extraordinary thing about the steam revolution what i call steam globalization is you have an absolutely unprecedented concentration of mechanical power and energy and all the things that go with that in one relatively small part of the world, Northwest Europe, and of course, above all in Britain. So this is something which you don't see in any previous era in world history. And it remains like that really for a surprisingly long time. I try to describe in the book why it's so hard for countries like China or even Turkey, Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, or other places outside the West to really access steam power properly. And it means, yes, the delay in getting steam power to them is, is, well, probably 40 or 50 years. What are the barriers to entry for steam power? You mentioned, I mean, is it hard to create cylinders? Is it coal? Is it energy? Why did Turkey, China, why do they struggle with steam power? Partly, I think, because, or mainly perhaps because, although you might say steam power is not a very difficult idea to grasp, it can be difficult to grasp if you have, as the Chinese had, a rather different tradition of understanding and drawing and uh, you know, creating diagrams of how machines work. And for some reason, it's very rather, rather strange. They weren't equipped with a kind of technical drawing to understand how the dynamics of a steam engine worked. But I think another, perhaps more serious problem is that setting up a steam engine requires you to have very precisely engineered elements to it, whether it's the boilers or the tubing, or particularly the means of delivering steam power to locomotion. It all has to be quite carefully engineered. And the number of skilled artisans able to do that is relatively limited. And it's extraordinarily dominated by artisans from Britain, many of whom, of course, emigrate to America. So it's, it's something which spreads very quickly in America as well. Without that artisan base, it's very hard to maximise your use or to, or to increase your use of steam power very much. OK, this is the big one. I'm afraid I'm going to hit you with this now. Why Britain? Why the North East? Why Northumbria, County Durham, why do these artisans emerge? And I've heard about as many reasons for this as there are reasons for the fall of the Western Roman Empire, from accessible coal with the right amount of sulphur in it near the surface. I mean, why is it this extraordinary little island, unremarkable island, why did it all happen here? Well, it's not so unremarkable. I mean, historians have been struggling with this question of why the northwest of Europe was able to achieve higher living standards, greater productivity in other parts of the world. And in many ways, you can see that the diffusion of artisan skills in Britain is actually very widespread right back well before we really encounter steam. So there is quite a wide base of artisan skills to draw upon and then to, you might say, then to, to mobilize when you have new sorts of machinery. I mean, just think of the way in which, for example, the skills of running a steam engine are not unrelated to those of managing a large windmill or water mill. A lot of it is rather similar. So that you've got a big artisan base. And then, as you say, of course, the other thing is you have literally energy to throw away. Coal is extremely cheap in many parts of England because England has got, and Scotland, because they have, and South Wales, because they have such extensive coal fields. You can explore, experiment with the use of coal in a way which uh, in countries which, well, like China especially, where fuel has become very expensive, you, you have a kind of fuel economy which minimises or seeks to minimise the wastage of fuel. In Britain, those constraints don't apply. So we've got lots and lots of fuel. You've got the artisans in the right place. You've got things like patent law and a legal system and a bit of venture capital yeah. money. And also you've got, you get this 
cocktail of virtuous or whichever adjective you want to describe it, circle. What is the effect on Britain's geopolitical clout? Because, of course, what's interesting is Britain's a kind of globally hegemonic power or on the way to being one without massive application of steam. So what does steam do for Britain? Well, I mean, you can say that Britain was a global hegemon. I think that's an exaggeration until you get into the 19th century. Britain certainly had quite extensive colonial holdings, mostly in the New World, to a very limited extent indeed in the East until the late, very late 18th century. So yes, there there was the basis for being a global hegemon in that period. What steam does is allows you to maintain your lead over other parts of the world, especially, of course, in the manufacture of of textiles, which is the most widely traded goods in this period, right through the 18th and 19th century. So that having penetrated some economies in the Eastern world, particularly India and China, which were very productive economies in many ways, you can maintain your industrial lead over them and indeed extend it because the remarkable thing is that the gap between economic performance and prosperity between Northwest Europe and also including, of course, the uh, United States or parts of the US and Asia and Africa, that gap goes on widening until quite late in the 20th century. And it's driven in part by the enormous advantage which steam power had conferred, because it gives you, among other things, of course, not just industrial power, but the capacity to penetrate other parts of the world in a much more far-reaching way, much more quickly and much more cheaply than, than you have been able to in the age of wind and, and the current. So there have been various waves of globalisation before. We've had uh, brilliant academics on this podcast talking about the globalisation of the 11th century, Silk Road. Why is this wave of globalisation, why did steam make the world even smaller and more connected? And how was it different? Well, because steam means that those parts of the world which lay only a few miles from any usable waterway could suddenly be connected up to an international trading economy. If you remember that uh, uh, even after a railway arrived, it was calculated that if you were trying to produce something bulky and you were more than 20 miles from a rail, railway station, it was virtually pointless to try and produce it because you couldn't make a profit. The cost of getting it to the railway was so great that you would, you would no longer make a profit. Now, that applied, of course, to uh, waterways as well. So prior to steam and prior to the railway, vast, vast areas of the world were simply lay outside the reach of an international economy of exchange. They are brought into it, although, uh, again, there are limitations, in the course of the 19th century, particularly in the later 19th century. So that hugely extends, you might say, the reach of global exchange of all kinds, not just, of course, uh, commerce, not just goods, but also many other things that flow around with globalization. That's probably the most striking feature. And of course, you have to remember also that once you have steamships able to make uh, numerous voyages in the course of a year, as compared with usually sailing ships on longer journeys, the volume available, space available to move goods around also expands enormously as well. So that reduces costs and increases the possibility of exchange of bulk goods, and which then again drive, you know, say, commercial globalisation. You look at these case studies, these great cities that we think of as fulcrum of the modern world, whether it's Shanghai, Mumbai, places like that, that you argue are the great legacy of this age. Can you tell me a bit more about them? Well, what these port cities do, I mean, when I, I spent a lot of time looking at the history of empires, and what strikes you after a while, particularly if you stare at a map long enough, is that much of the business of empire is actually passing down a fairly narrow set of corridors, over sea and indeed over land. 
but certainly the most important ones, particularly in terms of exchanges between Europe and other parts of the world, those corridors enter continents through port cities. And what happens in the 19th century is that when you have the combination of steamship and railway, it produces what is actually a quite a small number of great hub cities. These are the places where the railway system meets steamship because these are the places which then are able to invest in large harbors and all the equipment needed for the efficient exchange of goods and the efficient management of railway systems. So these cities emerge very rapidly in the course of the 19th century as really enormous cities with a vast range of facilities, vast range of activities, vast range of skills and large populations. And they're the ones which really are, you might say, the bridgehead between an expanding international economy and new hinterlands in, in Asia, Africa, and the Americas, which are being brought into that global economy. That's their role, that's their importance. And they are, of course, fascinating, not just because of their commercial role, but because they're also a cultural frontier, a cultural and political front line as well. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Well, exactly. Talk about culturally and politically. Presumably then that sets up, if you look at, for example, what we would call Rangoon in, in Myanmar. I mean, you get these places where there are then huge issues around that port, that area of activity and, and the hinterland. Yeah, yeah, there are. Of course there are, because the, the striking feature of almost all these port cities that I look at, I've got eight outside Europe, is that the people who are really running their commercial economies 
and also usually playing the biggest role in their politics, are not locals, they're outsiders. I mean, even in Shanghai, the merchant elite come from you know, other parts of, near, not that far away, but from other ports in China, like Ningpo or, or even Canton. Uh, and it's certainly very striking in the case of, say, Bombay, that the commercial elite come, uh, they are Parsis from further up the West Indian coast. Um, and of course, you have the European element as well, who vary greatly in their importance in these different port cities. So that, first of all, creates a sort of a natural tension between these more local elites and European outsiders. But then what you find happening in the course of the later 19th century, early 20th century, is that these cities tend also to attract large-scale immigration. Rangoon is an obvious example. It becomes really an Indian city, just as Singapore in Malaysia, Malaya, becomes a Chinese city. So there's another source, you might say, of potential cultural uh, conflict or tension. But the other element as well is that when they industrialize, that draws in other populations. I mean, Bombay is the best example of this. Once Bombay starts to industrialize, it attracts a large-scale population from the hinterland of the Deccan. And these are people who have very little in common with the Parsi elite, or indeed with the Gujarati Muslims, who on the whole, between those two of them, have dominated the Indian side of the Bombay's commercial life and cultural life. So there's a kind of, they are cockpits in which different populations, different social and cultural groups mingle, and to some extent, of course, have to work out conflicts of interest and conflicts of ambition. At the moment, we're living through an era of digital malaise. People are very worried about the internet, both in terms of the destruction of traditional working practices, the propagation of fake news and the threat to democracy. Do you see steam provoking quite a backlash politically, socioeconomically? And how quickly does that emerge? And dare I ask if any of that is to do with the pollution it gives off that we now know might prove catastrophic to human civilization? I haven't come across much sign that people were worried about steam pollution, certainly in the, in the cities I've looked at. But yes, of course, there is a, a backlash against steam mechanization. And the most brilliant exponent of this is Gandhi. Gandhi says, in effect, when he produces his great manifesto against British rule in India, in Swaraj, in the very early, well, the first decade of the 20th century, he says what we're contending with is a kind of, well, he's really describing a very inhumane form of mechanical civilization, which has to be rejected. Otherwise, you know, in a sense, this is what allows the outsiders, the British, to rule us, is this, you know, inhumane, mechanized civilization. We've got to get away from it. And of course, what is well known now is that many of Gandhi's ideas were, in a way, a reworking of ideas written about and expressed by Tolstoy, where again you have this reaction against what is seen as um, an industrial civilization characterized by class conflict, by impoverishment, by alienation, and a sort of installation of a plutocratic class, you know, who lacked feeling, lacked social solidarity. So all those ideas, I think, are certainly around, and they spread into, you might say, the regions penetrated by Western commerce and Western empires in the later 19th century, and they fuel reactions of the kind that Gandhi expresses so vividly. And you can see them in China, you can see them in other parts of Asia as well. Does harnessing steam, having power, does that confer power? I'm thinking about internally now coming back to the UK. Do we see a reshaping of the British elite and aristocracy? I mean, does in the way that, again, today, 
technology and the tech and the tech barons are, are now so prominent, not just in the sort of the economic sphere, but in, increasing into politics as well, other areas. Um, does does steam confer great power to individuals within societies as well? Certainly, I mean it does create a class of very wealthy industrial entrepreneurs. But I think, again, as uh, has been often, quite often pointed out, although these people do come to exercise quite a lot of social power, particularly within great industrial cities, in something like Armstrong in, in Newcastle, or some of the great textile manufacturers in, in parts of West Yorkshire or Lancashire, that if you think about the national stage, on the whole, their role is relatively modest. And compared, say, with those who are exerting influence through financial power in London, uh, who tend to have much closer contacts with government and with politics and, and, uh, and ministers. Probably it would be true to say that industrialists in this great era up to 1930 have rather less power than you might expect if you thought that steam was really going to be, uh, really was the great source of British power. The other factor, of course, is that the landed aristocracy is really canny in many ways. Landed aristocracy also enjoyed enormous wealth from its possession of, uh, where it was true, where, of its possession of coal fields, or from like the, the, the Earls of Derby, where they owned vast swathes of what became Liverpool, uh, or South Lancashire, and drew the rents from these, so that they became extraordinarily wealthy as well. And of course, there was also, I mean, the capacity to, to marry into new wealth. So oddly enough, I think that though you might have expected the Industrial Revolution in Britain to produce a a great change in the distribution of political power. You know, even as late as 1914, it only seems to have happened to a rather limited extent. And the professional classes, and I might say those who are derived their incomes from banking and finance and so on, are, are still in very powerful positions. Yes, it's all bringing back happy memories. Is it, is it Kane and Hopkins talking about British imperialism when they said, the, you know, that these oil, oily northern industrialists were excluded from the sort of corridors of power in Whitehall? So you mentioned the end of the period there. I mean, I think we, we should talk about hard power as, as well as economic power and the yeah. ability to make textiles. I mean, what is so profound about the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century is the ability of humans to kill each other with monumental yeah. success and in, in un unlimited numbers. That is surely a huge part of this as well. It is. I think uh, if you ask, I mean, people have often pointed out that uh, what happens in the later 19th century is that uh, if you just take the expansion of Europe's colonial empires, that they are able now to kill uh, any opponents very efficiently and sometimes in quite large numbers. Uh, so that's the ability to project military power is certainly striking as a novelty, I mean, in, in the later 19th century. And if you think about it, I mean, it's because now you can deliver a, an expeditionary force by steamer to any part of the world within a matter of a few weeks. And then, if like Kitchener, you are going to try and recapture, uh, or capture, shall we say, Khartoum and defeat the Mahdi, you can build a railway over the desert and deliver an army in a region which 30, 40 years earlier would have been effectively unreachable by a British army. So steam power, the railway and the steamship, I think are really just as important in delivering a sort of physical punch in different parts of the world for Western armies anyway, uh, as perhaps, you know, the use of the machine gun or more powerful rifles or more powerful firearms and, and, and artillery. Partly because, especially in, in remote places, 
carrying heavy weaponry, even carrying large numbers of bullets for a machine gun, is so difficult, unless you've got uh, good roads, which you on the whole won't, won't have. But, I mean, somebody studied this, that using a machine gun, for example, in the war, in war, colonial wars in Nigeria, armies didn't do it. They used it for 10 seconds because then they ran out of, ran out of, of shells. And so, oddly enough, you know, having the Maxim gun could be useful where you could supply it, but where you couldn't resupply it, it was a rather limited use. But getting there in the first place was something that by steamship or railway, that was an enormous acquisition of physical power. Since the invention of bronze, as a historian of empire and of global history, and having just written this monumental book, how important do you think this steam revolution is in the great sweep of, of human history? Well, as you say, I mean, it, it is quite difficult because you open up all sorts of other questions about which had the most far-reaching effects. That's difficult. But I think there's no doubt in my mind that, that in the vast sweep of pre-modern history, steam comes as a really dramatic acceleration of the capacity to exchange goods across the world, to move across the world, and indeed especially, I think, to be able to assume a regularity and frequency of contact between the first reaches of the world. That is really revolutionary. I mean, you've been able to travel across the world in the past, uh, in the very distant past, but uh, A, it took a very long time, and secondly, it was, there, was no, there was no certainty about arriving at any particular point. Therefore, messages could be exchanged, but they could be exchanged only with very un great deal of uncertainty about whether they would get there or when they would get there. Steam transforms that, I think, in a most dramatic way. But the other thing it does, as I was saying earlier, is there's no previous era, I think, when a particular technology handed so much power to one part of the world, which was the West, or particularly Northwest Europe, and, and what I think of as being its annex in the United States. That is, that is I think, pretty, pretty well unprecedented. In previous eras, there have been a number of different locations in the world, all of which have got broadly comparable technological achievements or technological capacity, but this is different. And it confers, I say, this, this extraordinary world-changing power, which only begins to unravel, really, I suppose, from about the middle of the, of the 20th century and then has accelerated, of course, sharply in our own time. John Darwin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What's the book called? It's called Unlocking the World, Port Cities and Globalisation in the Age of Steam. Thank you very much indeed. Good luck with it. Thank you. OK, bye-bye. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favour. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.